Welcome to episode 157. Today, we look at alternative forms of data and not just test scores. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. This is my process at the start of the school year. I look at the WIDA data for students entering my class. At the end of the year, I look at their new WIDA scores to determine the level of support they might need for next year. Never have I really thought about other forms of data. But when I do take observational data into account, they never hold as much weight as official scores. When looking or privileging one form of data, I have one narrative of students developing in their English skills. And that's always centered on how they're developing their English. I'm starting to realize that I'm missing the point by not looking at other forms of data. In this inspiring podcast, you will hear Dr. Jamila Dugan and Shane Safir come together to talk about their highly popular book called Street Data. It's about providing a systematic way of looking at all forms of data and what we can do with that data. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited. This podcast has been six months in the making with multiple reschedules, which is absolutely fine because <laughs> it is worth having Shane Safir and Dr. Jamila Dugan on the podcast. I still remember watching your Corwin uh, a video, YouTube video, and I was like, oh my goodness, so good. And I actually was talking to a very close colleague who is a fellow Cohen uh, author, we both are. Um, she said, oh my goodness, I read their book and I couldn't stop reading. And it was a transformational book. And she's one of the people who I'm like, whatever she says, I'm like, yeah, I, yeah okay, whatever you do, I'll, I'll do it with you. And so she, I, I, I trust her a lot. And so, um, you come with both such great praise. Welcome, doc, uh, Dr. Jamila uh, Dugan, and welcome Shane Safir to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Uh, would you uh, situate us in your location, in your context, work context right now, just to give it a very quick current uh, background? Oh, okay. Um, so I'm Shane Safir. I'm really honored to be here to meet you and have this conversation today. I am currently located in Victoria, British Columbia at the base of Vancouver Island, uh, the traditional territories of the Lekwungen people. And I'm really excited to be here for the school year, though missing my younger child who's down in the Bay Area in Oakland, um, because I get to just learn a lot in partnership with educators in BC, which is one of the most progressive forward thinking, you know, regions on the globe, on the planet, I think. Um, and then I also continue to do a lot of work in the States um, with Jamila and around street data. There's just been a lot of demand for us to help folks build capacity to move through the book. So we have some things on the horizon. We're cooking up a new series right now. And yeah, just continuing to learn with folks as the model of unfolds in the field. And I am Jamila, Dr. Dugan as well. And I am in San Diego. I just moved from Philadelphia, San Diego, um, the land of the Kumeye people. And 
I am just really excited about the amount of work that we are doing around street data, helping folks really operationalize this model. But I'm really coming to folks having been a kindergarten teacher in uh, both a Spanish immersion and I led a Mandarin immersion uh, school. So multilingualism is extremely important to me. Um, but I am also a mom with a brand new sixth grader. It's really hard for me. It's not for the faint of heart, this teen parenting thing. Seriously. <laughs> well, let's get started with a question here. Can you please both share a story that has shaped your practice from uh, the field of teaching? Um, I love this question because we're such strong believers in story and story orientation um, for educators. And there's so many stories because I've been in the field for a quarter of a century, which every time I say that, I'm like, oh God, I'm so old. But um, the one that came to mind today is the story that actually is the beginning of chapter five of Street Data, which is from my early teaching career. So I was a high school teacher in San Francisco and then later in Oakland. And um, I got to help start this law academy program with Rex Dekia, an extraordinary teacher. And we were just passionate and kind of crazy and, you know, just were like, didn't really care about a lot of the rules and regulations. We just wanted to build this cool experience for kids. Um, the summer after my first year of teaching, I met Lisa Arstia, who was teaching in a private school in Marin County. Um, and we hatched this project together where we were going to have our students come together across these really different contexts and basically investigate equity in education. And it was probably to date the most profound professional experience I've ever had. Um, it ended up being accidentally featured in an hour long documentary. That wasn't like the intention, but this really amazing Filmmaker came to share a film about her family's internment um, in, you know, American internment camps. And then I told her what we were doing. She was like, I'm looking for an educational documentary topic. Can we just come follow, you know? So they picked one of my kids, Eyelid, and one of Lisa's kids. And anyway, I think I still carry that project in my heart. I connected with those students recently who are now in their late 30s and made a little follow-up kind of mini documentary about that, that I need to figure out how to release and share with folks. Um, but two things that I can draw from that. One, I think is this deep faith in the power of young people to change the world. When we give them the tools and the space and just the trust in their vision, they did stuff in the community. They advocated at school board meetings. They hosted a 300 person event. They just rocked out. Like it was beyond. And I think the second piece for me that I still hold on to and hopefully shows up in the book is this deep belief in the power of learning experiences to transform the lives of young people. Um, and so just the privilege of having been able to build something really different outside the walls of the classroom, collaborative across schools, and then talking to those students now, 20 years later, and hearing how it really shaped their lens on the world in many ways, just that one, two month experience, um, certainly changed me and, and it sounds, it felt like it really changed them as well. So it's just, that's what I'm holding and thinking about a lot right now. They'll always remember that experience. If, if they remember there's something that's special, they won't remember the, the lessons that we have, but that experience that will always, the character changing experience, and I'm still trying to be a teacher like you who, who, create, who can create that experience for students. So. I bet you're doing it. 
Um, yeah, I think there's so many, as Shane said, there's so many experiences that are shaping us. And I feel like we are in this real time, like, well, this is actually shaping us. Wait, well, this experience we just had with our own kid. Wait, this other experience with, there's just so many things happening right now. But what really came to me today, especially with this particular podcast, is just the experience of having been in so many different, as some people would say, disparate learning um, environments. I think they've really shaped a very holistic understanding of what can happen, what does happen in schools. And so to be really specific about that, um, you know, street data is about taking a, a fundamentally different approach to how we look at data. Well, I started in a school that was really focused on something in America called AYP, Adequate Yearly Progress, um, from No Child Left Behind. And when we started there, it was so easy to see um, beautiful children through a deficit lens. Um, what do we need to do to hurry up and get back to AYP? But in this same exact school where I became a teacher, we actually transitioned under the leadership of um, my principal at that time to an international baccalaureate school. And same school, same kids, pretty much the same staff. And the level of excitement and change that we saw around just like what we were trying to do with kids was just fundamentally different. Now, I was very lucky in my very first year to have an assistant principal who really like got me to a, I mean, pretty quickly helped me with pedagogy in a way that I don't think people always um, get to. I also had a wonderful mentor, kindergarten teacher, but just being in that environment was really interesting, right? All black children. But then I really wanted to see, you know, there's all these conversations around low income schools that I felt like just was not like, it doesn't make sense to have that narrative. So I wanted to see what it looked like to be a leader in a high income school. So I was actually a school leader at a Mandarin immersion school. Same equity issues <laughs> that we had there. There was disproportionality between um, black students and other students. Students with IEPs were looked at in a certain way. Families were looked at a certain way. And the scores were really, really high. Really great school, by the way. I will say I, I really learned a lot from being in that environment. But I just think having been in like, here's how we talk about, you know, the all black school with, you know, a title one AYP focus toward a high income Mandarin immersion school. And then I, I've had the pleasure to sit on the board of a um, Spanish immersion school as well. And then I had my own experience of now being a doctor, but failing out of high school. So I think all these experiences have really just shaped my perspective around how we set kids up to really be in their genius or how we don't just based on our narratives and then our practices and systems and policies. So I've been thinking about that a lot um, these days. It seems like you both um, shared something very close to the hearts of uh, teachers of multilingual students is that changing the narrative around multilingual students, what they can't do, what they, changing that to what they can do. And so both of you touched on that. Let's. Uh, can I ask you about what was the seed for this book? Yeah, I love this question. Someone else asked us recently, and so I've been thinking a lot about it. And one of the things I'm thinking about is how like every every concept, every idea out there in the field has a history and has a genealogy, right? Like it never stands alone. It always rests on the shoulders of previous work and folks. And so I, I really like, I think both of us really aim to elevate and honor like the legacies. Um, and so one thing that I can speak to with street data is I was an instructional coach at the National Equity Project in 2008. 
um, in a project called Impact 2012 when these folks from New York City Baruch College came out and they trained us in something called SAM, the Scaffolded Apprenticeship Model. And it was very pointed, literacy-focused program. So we were basically you know, being trained how to work with teachers in Oakland. I was working in Oakland Unified around um, literacy to do running records, fluency checks, and then to transform instruction to ensure that you know, kind of underlying literacy gaps were addressed, right? And that kids could not have to remediate, but accelerate, right? And in, in, into the stay with the content of their grade level, but also like not miss these core things. So I learned a ton from that. And one of the things that stuck with me was they talked about these levels of data and how there's these different grain sizes of data. And I think they called it like level one, two, and three, and it was really focused on literacy. So then a few years later, 2017, um, gosh, almost a decade later, I started writing The Listening Leader and that concept came back to me. And I was thinking really one of the big barriers to equity in the field is that we talk about data so narrowly. And so in partnership with um, a principal I was coaching, Audrey Amos, who's brilliant and other folks, I started tossing around this metaphor and then it just sort of came into the language of satellite map and street. It was only three pages in that book um, that Jamila was a really important partner on as, as a research um, person. And, and yet like folks just kept gravitating toward it and asking about it and wanting to talk about it. <laughs> and so in a way, very organically, it, it evolved into its own project. And I'd love to hear Jamila talk about that because some of that just came out of the work we were doing in the field. Yeah, I think we saw a lot of just real time emergence in terms of the power of the idea. So I think, you know, we were working with several schools, but one sticks out to me in San Francisco where we were really talking about shifting discourse, which is something that I was just talking about in the beginning, the narratives we had. And when we were offering this idea of gathering street data as a way to understand students' perspective and use that to shift discourse, people were like, oh my gosh, this is really, really helpful. Um, and so we had a lot of moments like that. And I think that as Shane was in more conversation with folks, it just started to naturally become something that should be a narrow and focused um, topic in a text. Because at first, I don't remember what we were talking about, Shane, with like this really big, broad idea with, you know, helping people think about comp complex change. But it just started to narrow and narrow and street data as a deep, focused piece of work um, seemed to be really important and impactful um, for people. And it turns out that all these people who said that might have been right. <laughs> And uh, judging on the response on uh, on Amazon review, you it's definitely right that we're happy that you took this metaphor and you expanded out into and you you uh, expanded out into a book. So let's talk about the different chapters. Chapter one, can you talk about why it's so important to reimagine our ways of knowing and learning, especially for students who are BIPOC? Great. So ways of knowing and being, why do we need to reimagine? So first I wanna say, and I love that Zaretta Hammond does this all the time. This is not about just BIPOC students. It's really about all students. So I just wanna say that's super high level because sometimes people have this assumption that we're just trying to make sure that black and uh, brown um, and other marginalized students are doing well, but really white students would really benefit um, from this recentering. So I just wanna say that, right? But when we think about who's centered in the conversation of even just all education, right? It is not anyone who's black, indigenous, person of color, certainly isn't someone who is multilingual. It's definitely not someone who has an individualized education plan. And that's across the board. 
that harms every kid. But then it's a double whammy if you are pushed even more to the margins. So given the level of anti-Blackness that we have, the level of continued taking away from Indigenous culture, the continued deficit near, I mean, it's, it blows my mind, especially with the rhetoric around immigration, the continued negative rhetoric around students who um, are learning multiple different languages, it just doesn't make any sense. And I remember one of my professors, Patricia, uh, Patricia Bacadano Lopez, really showing us around this entire journey that students who have immigrated have gone through in order to get to where they are, like in a new country. And when you understand the amount of translanguaging, the story, the origin stories, when you understand the ways of being, you immediately begin to say, wow, we are like, when we're thinking about this, you know, metric of success in school, it's so narrow and yet the experience is so vast. I remember um, a community experience, Shane, you shared with one of the students, I think in your husband's classroom, sharing his journey of immigration and just the amount of cultural wealth in that student. We don't think about that ever at all. And so my question really becomes, if we're not thinking about um, our ways of knowing and being, how can we teach and lead with equity in mind without those folks being at the center? Like, how does that work? If you are someone who, uh, you know, really, I mean, we have this global majority, but this global minority decides really what happens for everyone. And so a really big question I have for a lot of my, um, you know, my white colleagues, and this is something I talk to Shane a lot about is, what does it look like for you to think about how your ways of knowing and being have been privileged in this entire discourse around education? What does that mean, right? What does that really mean? What does it mean that you might have been able to go through your entire career without thinking about somebody else's vantage point or point of view? If we're talking about transforming systems, there's absolutely no way that's going to happen if the same exact group of people keep making the decisions. And so when you ask why we need to reimagine our ways and, and uh, of knowing and being the, the me being smart and snarky is like, because it just makes sense to do. Right. Um, but in the more, you know, full answer, it's that we need to really right size who we're, you know, listening to and privileging as we think about reimagining anything. And I think anytime I've seen us tap into um, the knowledge and the brilliance of folks who are both close to a challenge and close to an idea of freedom and liberation, then you really see transformation and collaboration and an expansive way of knowing for everybody happen. So that's my my thought on it. But I certainly think this idea of knowing, uh, ways of knowing and being, your, you'll probably hear me come back to a lot because I'm very much over and over affirmed in this idea that you really shouldn't be thinking about any kind of change without starting with the conversation around knowing, uh, ways of knowing and being, so. Um. Yes, I love listening to Jamila talk about this. I feel like this is another concept in the book that's so iterative and that, you know, it's like it, there's a little bit on it in the book. And then as we talk about, it, especially I feel like Jamila is really pressed for deepening um, the conversations around this in the work. So I had this experience on Vancouver Island in April, 2019, that I wrote about in chapter one, right? This kind of experiential learning journey for three days. Um, led by elders from the Coast Salish Folkaminum speaking community, as well as other folks, um, you know, in that community. 
And that experience rocked my world. Like it not just reinforced some of my core beliefs about children and teaching and learning and community, but it, it it gave me really another epistemology, another way to think about what it means to radically transform teaching. Um, and then I wrote the story in a draft form of the chapter, and I shared it with someone I really respect, Dr. Sean Jinwright, who's a professor at SF State of Africana Studies and an author and just a thought leader. And he gave me two pieces of feedback that were so important. One was, you need to go do some research around epistemology. You need to dig into this underlying theme of ways of knowing and being, because data is like the tip of the iceberg. And if we're only talking about satellite data and why it's a problem, but you're not investigating the epistemological structure that sits underneath that set of assumptions, like you're doing a disservice. So that he sent me off. I read um, Linda Tuvey Smith's book, Decolonizing Methodology. It also blew my mind. <laughs> and, and then the other piece of feedback he gave me was you have to be more vulnerable in your writing. You have to locate yourself as a white author. And that was a great piece of feedback and something that, you know, I continue to really work on is investigating my own ancestry, my own roots, locating myself in the work, being able to hopefully model for other white folks like, you know, white is as much a construct as anything else. And it's really like part of white supremacy is this false narrative of how connected white people are. But like we have stories as Denise Augustine, my friend said on a pod the other day, we're all colonized at some point. Right. And I come from white people who are Irish and Jewish who had these like really wild, oppressive histories in Europe. And so how to really take responsibility for knowing where I come from and being able to talk about that, um, I think, is a big piece of this question of reimagining our ways of knowing and learning. And then also like making space, right, like decentering whiteness at the same time. So there's like a little bit of a dialectic there, like holding that, telling my story, being able to look at myself, but also like getting out of the way to center those who've been more historically marginalized. It, it seems like you're already talking about um, decolonization of education. You're already talking about decentering whiteness. Like these are all words where I would, in America, people would go, oh my goodness, critical race theory. Like. I'm, I'm sure you've been pushed back against that. Like, what do you say to that? I love the question that you just asked in terms of pushback. It's actually one of the things I love talking about because I, first of all, just want to say we are so confident in the way this is not unhelpful to folks to talk about these things that it actually doesn't move me for people to be, you know, in the anti-CRT space. I, I don't have the energy to push back with you around why this is okay. So I just want to say, like, I don't even really engage in that conversation. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that comes up for me is uh, Dr. Jarvis Given's book, Fugitive Pedagogy. And he talks about the way in which we have to sometimes be subversive in order to get to where we're trying to go. This has been a, a tenant of blackness for a very, very long time. And so when I am coming into an environment that might be in a state where this is an issue, we're again, the street data model is so concrete and so specific and allows you to operationalize words like anti-racism or, or whiteness in a way that makes you go, mm, that really makes sense. Then I think people have been able to come to the idea. Now, does every person need to hear me say, you know, racist right away? No, but it's certainly going to come up in, in my language because that's the way that we have to describe 
what is going on. But I do think, I, I especially think it's important for people who are listening to this in places where that's actually not okay. I, I think it's important to acknowledge that subversion and being a fugitive, if you will, and figuring out the way in which you're going to get to what you need to go get to without, you know, going directly in the system is sometimes something that you have to do. But I, I really don't entertain uh, the conversation at all. And I think that there's so much work to be done without engaging in that conversation um, that that's just a, a choice I, I have decided to make. But it certainly is one that is interesting. And I just want to say this other thing, as we're in international spaces, Shane, it's become even more you know interesting and complex to think about what it means to meet people where they are given where that conversation might be. That's my 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 thought on it. I feel like that's another snarky thing that I've now said. <laughs> Not at all. No, I think that's right. It's like, who's who's going to, in community organizing, I don't remember what the principle was, it was like, define the conversation, define the outcome. Like, who gets to define the conversation? And if we enter all the time through this, you know, ideological lens of like, we can't talk about race and critical race theory and all of these red herrings, like then we let people have power who are just invested in the status quo. So I love when Jamil's like, I don't suffer fools around this. Like, we're not going to talk about this stuff because this is not the right conversation. Um, and I think it's like really complex to figure out how to travel in some of these spaces that are more conservative in the US and like what to, what we can and can't say, you know, and if we even want to do work in places where there's essentially gag orders on talking about racism. May I just add this one other piece, Shane, around this that I, I just think is an important invitation is that the places where people are talking about anti-CRT, they don't bother me at all. I, I want us to get to a place where we can have open dialogue and conversation around all of this. And so I know some folks sometimes, you know, when I when I say I don't, you know, I'm not moved by it. It's not a shutting down. It's more of a like, that's not the thing we're going to work on together, right? We're going to talk about the needs. This is what street data is about. We're going to talk about the needs of the kids in your group, right? That's rural students in rural places too, right? Um, and that, you know, that's just one example, but that's the conversation we want to have. And I think that's what street data helps us with. Let's go back to your book about talking about needs for students. Chapter two, can you talk to us about avoiding equity shortcuts, traps, and tropes? Yeah, so we started with this really important idea around epistemology. And the person that actually introduced me to this idea was Dr. Muhammad Khalifa in his book around culture responsive leadership. And, and when I read his book, it was such a fundamental embodied difference that it made me say to myself, like, you can't just go and, you know, want to operate differently and just think you're going to go and do that. And along with being really shaped around that a few years ago, I was in the field and seeing all these tremendous leaders who were trying to make change, but like it stopped before it even started. Or there's people who are really frustrated by some things that could be really addressed pretty quickly. And so um, really Trapped in Tropes is both a rant and a love letter to educators who are trying to do things differently. And I say it's a love letter because I think sometimes we're scared to be aware of or talk about the things that are landmines and huge barriers to us being um, transformative, right? And so I wanted to kind of acknowledge that and affirm that those things exist, especially for those who like been saying these things for a million years and are like, 
am I crazy? And it's like, no, 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 no. These things are happening all over the place. And so if you think about shifting epistemology, one of the things I think is really helpful about street data is that it helps you operationalize that shift by forcing you to choose a different place to start at when you're thinking about making change. That's really great. One of the things that, um, you know, is a, a really real worry, and I think a lot of scholars have had this for a, a long time and see this with other models or ideas, is that people want to go real quick. This is really great. I'm going to go do that right away. <laughs> but the issue is you didn't think about what was already that what you've already been doing that doesn't help. And you didn't think about what was going to potentially get in the way. And you didn't think really deeply about epistemology, which is why that's chapter one. So the equity traps and tropes are really there to help us take serious the barriers to change, to say before you go and pick up on this really exciting idea called street data, please stop on the front end and think about what you do and don't know so that your inquiry process is thoughtful and it's serious and it takes into account some of these really big systematic um, issues, policy-based, discourse-based um, issues that are inevitably going to be in the mix because of epistemology, because we haven't been centering other folks, because we have been trying to do quick fixes, because we have been not really taking like a fundamentalist approach to change. So the last thing I'll just say about that is like, you know, I think I mentioned this a little bit, some people were seeing, you know, there was a conversation in a district we had and a conversation we had with some folks in Canada. Some black folks were really concerned when they were introduced to the street data model around some of how their colleagues were operating with it. And what they were seeing was folks doing it. They wanted to like figure out where we we're going to put street data in the midst of like our 50 other initiatives. And that's a trap. This idea that we're going to go and checklist this thing out, right? And so even now, even though it's been written, I just want to say, like, this is something people, this epistemology chapter and the tra uh, traps and tropes tra uh, chapter are really foundational for you to have awareness. And then throughout, you know, trying to actualize the street data model, something for you to go back to, because there's just going to be so many barriers that we've seen many times before out there to come and get us and make this work, not, not get to where we want it to go, so... Before we go to uh, part two of your book, which is about like the how of street data, how would you describe it to people who are absolutely new to the concept in like an elevator pitch or like in a, subside, a succinct sentence? I'll just define it how we define it in our kind of keynotes and, and signature talks, which is the qualitative data that emerges at our eye level and on higher frequencies when we train our brains to discern it. So and I will only add that that data is systematic and is something that is to be taken serious because it is because it is available every single day. I mean, the you whoever decided on the title street data, it was just like a golden title, like right away. You got it. it just like the shift. It's very similar to the shift of like, oh, English learners or multilingual learners. It's a totally different mm -hmm. concept of the focusing on right. centering English to saying, oh, students have multiple assets, like their languages. Right? And so when we think about street data, the title, like, oh, I'm looking at only at the data that students give me in their tests. Is that enough? And so brilliant, brilliant title. Let's talk about 
part two. Um, so how can street data drive equity? Can you talk about how we can center the voices of the people who are on the margins? Yeah, you just made me think of a student I taught named Mimi that just really illustrates. Uh, I'm going to try to make it uh, connect because when you said the difference between English language learners and multilingual learners. So I was in a high income school as a school leader, right? And I had a student named Mimi who uh, presented as very bright, right? She always spoke and all these things, but her tests, she always did not do well on, on them, right? And um, you know, we thought it was really interesting why the data was showing her not doing so well. And in class, you know, she was amazing, like, you know, many of our other students. Well, at parent-teacher conferences, we met with her father, and it turned out she was learning three different languages. There was nothing wrong with her. When you are learning three different languages, at the beginning, you see a little bit of a lag if you care about test data. Test data. But by the time you get to fifth grade, you outpace pretty much every student. And so when you think about the idea of choosing the margins and street data, had we continued to look at that test data and someone like did that for every grade level for her, the expectations would have kept going lower and lower. And instead, this kid is sitting, you know, by the end of her schooling, so she's going to know four languages, right? And so I think that just really illustrates this idea around multi, if we pr are privileging the English language versus like multilingualism, which is pretty much something like, wouldn't it be great if we all had? But anyway, when you think about choosing the margins, I think about, I can actually tie it to this example. My, again, tongue in cheek answer is to start thinking about how did we end up centering English in that way? How did we end up centering whiteness? How do we do that? In some ways, I want to say in the same way, when you think about choosing the margins, think about how we chose the opposite, right? I want to say like, how did we decide to privilege those voices and that level of data? Uh, well, what we did was we saw them as experts. We looked to them. We saw their word as gold. Uh, gold. We aligned our expectations to that way of being. That's exactly what we did, right? And it was just assumed that that is who knows the most. Um, because way back in the day, early, early research that was taken seriously came from all mostly actually white male. Um, scholars, right, who I'm not going to discount, right? I think like Dewey and Piaget, like there was lots of different things that came out that were really, really important. And at the same time, it was always missing a perspective that was always there, right? When you think about the higher frequency language that changes use. And so choosing the margins really, at least uh, to us, means that we right size and start rooting any change effort in the gifts, the insights, the expertise, the deep, authentic know-how of those who are closest to the ideas or the experience of challenge, but also closest to the ideas of how to define liberation and freedom. There is no one who can describe the aspirations of a child who is becoming multilingual than that child or their family. Like they're gonna, even me as having been in a Mandarin aversion environment, I'm, not, I'm still not the best one to articulate what the dreams and hopes are or the experience of being a student who is learning most of that's not me. Now I have maybe the ability to understand more because of my experience, maybe, but who's gonna have the most information about what we need to do? It's gonna be that student who is learning those multiple languages, right? So choosing 
uh, the margins means that we either ask directly or we co-explore, right? Because sometimes our babies like need our support and being able to articulate what it is that they want and need. Um, but that's where we have to go. And I would just add on to that because sometimes, you know, we might be in a place of trying to figure out, I, I don't actually even know how to start um, having conversations with people around um, what they might want or need. Well, we also can then go back to historical knowledge and historical context and, and who has known for a long time, the best people to ask about black education are the many of scholars who have been writing about black education since black education started, which was at the dawn of time, right? And that goes for every other group of people. So if we're gonna even just think about, again, epistemology and choosing the margins, it's who we decide to read it's who we decide to privilege when we're speaking to other folks and, and getting training from folks um, in terms of knowledge building. It's really kind of thinking about it all the way from a historic lens to the street data that we're gathering on, you know, every single in every single day. It's almost like you're saying, let's step back and look at who has created the narrative and who are silenced. Let's give the mic to those who have been silenced. And let's see kids differently. Yeah, I would say that. And I, I've been playing with a lot of language. I would say like silence, yes, but like also listen to, but then like like pretend like I didn't hear you, right? Or like I, I, I engage with this idea that you gave, but then really this other book is like kind of more, more close to my style or my way of knowing. So I'm going to privilege that, right? So sometimes I actually do think even now that we are having more representation, but if you're truly listening is a really big piece too. So silence and fake listened to. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I guess that fake listening is very much like um, performative, performative listening. Yeah, which then goes into traps and tropes, right? Like street data, choosing the margins really helps us climb out of those. So, right. yeah. Right. Don't wave your I'm woke flag too soon. Don't wave it at all. I don't even need to see it. Just show me your actions and then we can talk about <laughs> degree to which, you know. Shane, I, I heard you laugh. Would you like to talk about anything? <laughs> no, I, we're on the same page around this. I think that there, this is like, we could do a whole other podcast on American sociopolitical discourse and the ways in which we're trapped in a very binary model of thinking about human development and humanity. And it's just not super helpful. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> well, you're helping us see in a different way why it's not helpful and finding a more helpful way. Let's look at chapter four. It's titled Pound the Pavement, Digging into the Levels of Data. How do we look at, how do we look for the root causes instead of quick fixes? Yeah, so I can speak to this a little bit. Um, I think this is probably the most quote unquote practical part of the book in that it offers a process tool, right? A cycle framework with steps and tools and protocols and things like that. But I do want to reiterate something Jamil said earlier, which is if people were to start this book at chapter four and go out there and try to do an equity transformation cycle, gather some data, da, 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 move a thing, change a thing. I feel like that would be ground zero of the traps and tropes. Like, this is not what we want people to do. <laughs> There's a reason why it's chapter four. There's a reason why I presented this summer to about 200 leaders in Arizona, teacher leaders. I actually didn't even talk about what street data was until like 1 p.m. on that first day. 
Like there's a reason why this is all slowed down and rooted in ways of being and knowing because somebody, I don't know who it was, but there's this quote you guys may have heard too, that a tool is only as good as its user, right? Like people, and Zaretta Hammond often talks about people are so hungry for tools, understandably, right? Understandably. But if we can't slow down and look in the mirror and really understand who we are and how we show up in the work in the world, there is no tool coming to save us <laughs> that's going to actually make a difference. So all that said, hopefully this chapter in the equity transformation cycle serves as an empowering tool or framework for folks to operationalize street data model. And then a couple of things I can say about it is that, you know, there's an ethos built into the, to the framework around slowing down, really slowing down. This is very uncomfortable, Evie, sorry. This is very uncomfortable for a lot of people in school districts, you know, who have kind of internalized white supremacy culture. Those are largely white people, but not always. There's a kind of sense of urgency. There's often a defensiveness. And it's connected to this narrow sense that data is what we can measure and quantify and write down. So I think part of what we're still unpacking and learning as we do this work is what is this more expansive field of data, right? And what's the data you can't see, you can't touch, you can't write down, you feel when you walk into a room, like what's the classroom you want your own child to be in and why? That may not be quantifiable at all. <laughs> So people got to slow down and really resist these impulses of like getting things done, measuring an incremental chain, you know, gain these kinds of like test driven, um, perhaps in tropes to use Jamil's language. And then I think second, as we expand or affirm our ways of being and knowing, we have to commit to actively go out there and gather street data and see that as part of our role and responsibility at every level of the system. We were in a conversation earlier today where it was like, yeah, principals and teachers can go gather street data, but district leaders will look at the satellite data. And there's a gentle correction. No, everybody's job is also to gather street data. Because if you're running a district and your principals are all miserable and feel like the district isn't serving them, you better be sitting down and listening and figuring out what are those pain points and what am I, what are we doing at the central office that's not in service of transformation and equity? especially if you're, you know, losing principles in droves, which is happening in lots of places right now. So, you know, committing to actively gathering street data everywhere, but especially at the margins through the lens of choosing the margins. And then I think third, and this is kind of built in gently to the cycle as well, that through this process, we are building new capacity. That every time we move through the cycle, we are building new capacity to listen, to collaborate with folks at the margins, not to do four or two, but to do with, to design with, um, and to reimagine, right? To step outside the incarceration of the imagination and start to dream of other ways of teaching, being, and leading. Um, I don't know if it's helpful. I have one example I could talk through, but I feel like I already said a lot. So it's up to you. You want me to talk through yourself? <laughs> okay. So one that's kind of close to my heart as a parent is the example of gender neutral bathrooms in schools. So this is like a big pain point for a lot of trans and non-binary kids, right? And what I saw and have seen a lot is that like people in the district or the school leadership know it's a problem. Like they know it's, you know, they know it's not working well, but they just, it's like ringing your head. They just can't figure out how to change it. Well, you know, we can't let kids into the staff bathrooms and we don't have enough bathrooms. We don't have enough security guards to unlock. And da -da. there's like lots of excuses right? For why. 
And what that leads to is incredibly dehumanizing experiences. Like for a lot of trans kids, you just don't go to the bathroom all day because it's not safe. Okay. Um, and so if we were to use the equity transformation cycle to actually come at that challenge differently, the very first thing we would do is we would structure time, sacred time to listen deeply to the students who are experiencing this and to ask them, what's it like to move through a day here? What are the barriers you're facing to the very human access issue of getting to the bathroom? You know, how does it feel when you can't access a safe bathroom? How does it impact your learning? This is a pedagogical question. How does it impact your learning, right? And then we would slow down and we would take that data and uncover like, okay, what are we learning here? What new information is here? What are the root causes of this problem? How are we constrained by our own imaginations and how to solve this? And then ideally, and we're still working on how to train people how to do this, but ideally we would then go back and we would design with the students we've listened to. We would create a new kind of design table or space and we would say, let's solve this together. To do that, we have to share power. We have to believe we're not the only people with answers and we have to be willing to get uncomfortable and change some things that may feel like, well, you know, we can't do this or that. No. What do the students need? And we're going to design from that perspective and lens with them. So I hope that's a helpful example. It felt concrete to me. It came up for me this morning and there's a million other examples, but Jamil, what, what would you add to this piece here? No, I think that was a really nice um, breakdown of the equity transformation cycle. And I, I think the only thing I would double tap on is this process is for everyone. So as much as we're, you know, talking about who is centered in these discussions, we all have been colonized. So I think, you know, for all of us, we have to slow down and engage in these processes across difference and for ourselves to figure out how we move in the way that Shane described with this example. Would you just for a speaker's sake, for a listener's sake, can you go through the cycle again? Just like this is the first step phase. These are different phases. Okay, so it begins always with listening with a mindset of radical inclusion. Once you gather the street data, you pause, slow down, and you uncover with a mindset of curiosity. Get really curious about what the data reveals. And then you might have to go back and listen some more, or you might move forward toward reimagining with a mindset of creativity. Now you're trying to shirk all the constraints and all the things you think you can't do to really think outside the box with folks you've listened to. And then ultimately it's moving with a mindset of courage. So it sounds like you're, the cycle really is, the foundation of the cycle is interviews, like student interviews, talking to teachers, um, that's the kind of data we're collecting? Yeah, I think that that's a, actually really important for us to pull out. So yes, 100%, that is one of the pieces of data that we're collecting. But remember, in the beginning, we were saying this is systematic, right? So sometimes the street data is observations in the classroom, very low inference observations, you know, who's participating when, right? Um, there's lots of different ways to, to collect observ observations. Student work and tell you how many times people don't look at the student work. This is also something um, that we uh, that we think is really important to look at. Of course, the focus groups and the listening sessions and things of that sort, but I think it's the things that are the, the most um, concrete and micro uh, pieces of data that we can gather uh, pretty much every day. And sometimes that is the conversation and sometimes that's the product that comes out as a result of some sort of interaction. And, and for us, I know you're gonna ask us about pedagogy, what happens as a result of a pedagogical experience. 
Well, would you like to end there with that pot, with that question, talking about pedagogy? It's our favorite. Go ahead, Shane. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about chapter five. I know we don't have a ton of time left, so I'll try to be brief here. Um, so the principle in chapter five, equity work is first and foremost pedagogical, is really near and dear to both of our hearts. I think we, you know, part of the interruption, if you will, of this book is this pattern in the field of consulting where you've got the equity folks over here and you've got the instructional folks over here and never the two shall meet. So the equity people tend to do the navel gazing equity, I would say a lot of time or spray and pray if we go back to the traps and tropes and the instruction people are just focused on content. We talk about literacy or we talk about math or we talk about multilingualism. And I think for us, those two things are inextricably and intimately linked because truly at the end of the day, what do children remember? They don't remember the bell schedule they really don't remember the equity policy, right? Um, they don't remember whatever, all the strategic plans we've written that live on a shelf. They remember the micro experiences that happen at the classroom level for better or for worse. They are either transformed and have moments of opportunity through teaching and learning experiences and or they feel oppressed and harmed and carry those stories. And we know this because we ask these questions of adults all the time. And people can still feel in their bodies things that happened to them decades ago. Like that's how real and deep it is. Um, and so the lens of simplexity from Michael Fullan's work, I think is so powerful. And I try to draw on that in this chapter, this idea that, you know, you, that complex phenomenon um, can be influenced or governed by really simple rules. And so I like to believe, I don't know if this is true and you guys should challenge me, but I like to believe that great pedagogy is actually simpler than we think. That we have 5 million curriculum guides and pedagogical frameworks and all these things, but like great teachers have been doing their thing forever in like black schools in the South, in cities, in multilingual environments, like Badass teachers have been around for a long time without all the fancy, you know, bells and whistles. And so what I try to do in this chapter is encapsulate in these six simple rules of a pedagogy of voice, just some of these like guideposts, you know, some of these ways of like being really being like epistemologies in the classroom that might help us move away from this compliance centered model of teaching toward one that is aligned with street data, which is the most important data in the room is student experience. The most important sound in the room is student voice. <laughs> How do we create an echo chamber of students talking to students where we're guiding and facilitating through our moves, our micro moves as, as teachers? Um, and I think that's just as true at the adult learning level. We talk about this a lot, right? The symmetry, you can't ask teachers to engage in deeper learning with their students. And then they come to PD and we just lecture at them for two hours. Like, what is that? Why, why are we doing that? You know, the hypocrisy is just terrible. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I don't want to go too deep on this, but that's, that's kind of like a high level. Feel free to do a, ask any follow-up questions if you'd like. Well, it is the end of the podcast. So we will make sure that uh, readers will actually go into the, if they want to go deeper, that's the purpose of the book. So, I want to thank you both, Shane. Uh, on, I want to say, though, the building coherence piece, I don't know if we have to, I'm happy to say for two minutes, I just think Jamila's take on this is really brilliant. So if you oh, have yes. time, that might be a good Please place do. to end. Yes. Yeah. Could you talk to us about um, building coherence? Um, how, how is less more and focus is everything? 
Yeah, so I think the this is one of the most important ideas. I mean, these are all important ideas, actually. But when it when the rubber meets the road, I think that the question around coherence is huge. Focus and coherence, I probably spend 80% of my time coaching people around. And put simply, lots of change efforts fail because we do not focus. We do too many things and we do too many things at once, right? So let's just think about this in this, uh, the, the idea that Shane was just talking about with equity work being the uh, first and foremost pedagogical work. You can focus just on the pedagogical experience for students and teachers for years with the equity transformation cycle. There's a lot of inquiry and investigation that can happen in across the system just with that. So for example, she was saying equity folks here, instructional folks here. I would also add culture, SEL folks over here. A lot of people are interested in the pursuit of belonging right now, right? But when they're in the pursuit of belonging, it often is about like belonging outside of the classroom. Like what do you need in the most you know high level sense, right? More clubs, more this, more that. But you can be really focused and just talk about a sense of belonging in the classroom space. And then when you're talking about professional learning, still sense of belonging in the classroom space, along with pedagogy of voice, right? How does pedagogy of voice help with a sense of belonging, right? That's professional development for the teachers as well. Then at that point, I don't even think you need to talk about curriculum or a new literacy initiative or whatever the 50 million other things you were talking about. This goes for students who are learning a different language, a new language, students with an IEP. You can just focus on the idea of sense of belonging in the pedagogical experience using pedagogy of voice and then every lever of support all the way up from a district to a superintendent can just be focused on that. Now, it requires you to say no to lots of different things, but we really see that when you go narrow and deep on one thing and then build coherence in the system, that's how things change because we as human beings, we just can't hold all of it. It just There's just no way. Um, so you see, I start to get really emphatic about this idea because coherence, I think we're seeing time and time and time again, Shane, that if you do not have that, it's really for not. It's just like another good idea or input or initiative that then gets spread across every other thing that I'm doing. And I, the last thing I'll just say is this like even goes down to the meetings that you're in, right? Like how is your meeting about ultimately about that belonging, right? And the coherence with the pedagogy and how are you talking about that every time? Can't just be like a checkbox thing. So coherence, coherence, coherence. When you all go and continue to work through the street data model, please really stop and really say, Hey, yes, what are the traps and tropes? But also, are we coherent? We, you know, Shane really outlined some really specific practices with pedagogy of voice within the equity transformation cycle. Go back and say, is this connecting? Is this aligned to the other things that we are doing? And what do we have to let go of in order to really manifest this model? Because it's not a step-by-step -step linear process. <laughs> what you're saying is no is a focal lens. And when we say no to something, we say yes to something else. Yeah. So, mm, I love that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I, my friend was correct. This book is transformational. And the way that you talked about it is transformational. Thank you. I'm happy that I, I got to press some of your buttons because I could see both of your energy come out and be like, listen. <laughs> good, good questions, Tom. Yeah, good questions. Your questions. And thank you for your dog children for making cameos on the podcast as well. <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys, this dog is too much for me. Um, it's wonderful to meet you. Please share the pod when it comes out with us and we'll amplify it too. Yes, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been my honor. Thank you.
Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. As I listen to this podcast again, I'm reminded of the quote that things that can be measured do not always count and things that count cannot often be measured. I was so inspired from this podcast and it nudged me to think about talking about students, not just from their WIDA scores or the end of year literacy scores. I have to include all the data that MLs bring to the table every single day. So those things matter just as much as things on a placement test. I hope you get to read this book and see a different narrative around MLs by looking at different forms of data. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine.